I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hello, friends, and welcome to the show. Once Upon a Gene is a special place, and I'm so grateful you're here. In a few days, it's Rare Disease Day, February 28th, 2022. Make sure and join our Discord group. The link is in the show notes, or you can message me and I will personally deliver it to you. We're having a live Q&A event at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, where we're going to have experts and amazing advocates answering all of your questions. We have mental health professionals, grief experts, early intervention therapists, inclusion experts, how to make a rare disease film, lots of stuff. And I really hope to see you there. My guest today is like a fuzzy blanket. She's a beautiful writer and a guest blogger at the Courageous Parents Network and a local rare mom here in Seattle. She lost her beautiful son, Colson, to a mitochondrial disease in 2020. And today we're talking about all the doubling back and the switchbacks and the direction of all of the things from ambiguous grief to palliative care to what the hell do I do now? Please enjoy my conversation with the beautiful Liz Morris. Hello, Liz Morris. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, my gosh. I was just telling before we were recording that I've been wanting to have you on the show since I met you in just our Seattle group of raising kids with disabilities like forever ago. And I've just watched you throughout the years and you mean a lot to so many people. And I'm just so happy you're here. I'm so, so happy to be here. And it's so like, thank goodness for that group, right? I remember in very early days as a mom to a child with a disability and complex medical needs, just floundering and then finding that group and and finding people with so many similar experiences. And I think you and I put the pieces together that we actually very first connected when you needed to get some extra formula or something, or I was giving away extra formula and you ended up like coming to my house and doing a porch pickup and you know, that was when our boys were both really, really little. And now all these years later, we've kind of lived into it. Thanks in large part to people in that group. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Thank the Lord for groups like that in the beginning mm -hmm. when it's the first thing and sometimes the only thing you can find before resources like these blogs and these podcasts have been put up in the last couple of years. Absolutely. Or before you've figured out how the heck to manage to navigate Correct. the various systems. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, as you say in the first line of your latest blog, my brain is buzzing and uh, I, I just want to talk about so much with you. So I'll try to consolidate it. But just to lay out the land in case anyone doesn't know you, I'd love to know a little bit about Colson and your family. Yeah. So I am always thrilled to talk about Colson. So things to know about Colson. He was a beautiful and magical child. Golden blonde hair, sea blue eyes, buttercream skin. He was just the sweetest, sweetest being in the world. He was born in 2016 and after a healthy pregnancy, healthy delivery, et cetera, et cetera. But a few weeks after his birth, he was having some medical issues and uh, he was diagnosed with mitochondrial disease, which is a rare genetic disease that impacts the parts of the cells that turn food into energy. It is a progressive and frequently degenerative disease, and that was um, the case with Colson. So basically every major system in his body was compromised because it was deprived of energy. So he was both medically complex and severely disabled, and the the really difficult kind of, I'm I'm air quoting here, life-limiting symptoms of his disease really progressed and manifested in the first year of his life. I think... Many of his symptoms will sound familiar to listeners of this podcast. He had irretractable epilepsy. He was blind. He needed to use a feeding tube. Many other things that I can't rattle off right now. But we had our hands full and we actively engaged with palliative care throughout his entire life because we wanted to really maximize his quality of life. We didn't have a prognosis for him in terms of longevity, but we knew that just because of the severity of his symptoms and the progression that we saw, his life would be short. And he ended up passing away in December of 2020. Pretty quickly in the big picture, big scheme of things, It was expected that he would die young, but the way it actually unfolded was a matter of hours. So it was pretty jarring. Uh, And so my husband and I have spent the past, just over the past year, kind of recalibrating. Colson was our only child. My husband, Jacob, and I live just north of Seattle in a really beautiful and supportive seaside community called Edmonds. And he was an incredible father and an incredible partner as we figure out what's next. So I'm really so grateful to have him. But we are definitely in kind of a recalibration phase in the middle of a global pandemic. So what better time? I know, right. (laughs) Uh, Oh, gosh, I'm looking at Colson's bald little head right now. He's so beautiful. And I'm so, so sorry for your loss. That was just so painful to to just experience even from from my angle. Thank you. But yeah, that darn kids. I know. <laughs> Steal our hearts. <laughs> <laughs> you know, speaking of going through this during a global pandemic, it makes me think of something that Daniel DeFabio said a couple times recently, and I wonder what your thoughts are. He said that maybe, maybe there's a little twinkle in the fact that our son passed away during a global pandemic because I don't have to face everyone like it's normal life in just a couple weeks and that I have some time to like just melt into our days and maybe try to grapple with things with less pressure. Yeah, 100% agree. And Jacob and I have have been very kind of careful in how we try to frame that sentiment with each other and with others because like... It, the whole world has an excuse to kind of, I shouldn't say excuse, but the whole world is hunkering and sheltering and 
limiting social contact. And that is helpful. I think the way it manifested most directly for us was after Colson died, I just could not imagine doing any sort of service or funeral or whatever you want to call it. I just, I couldn't wrap my head around doing that. And because of the pandemic, it was like really easy for us to say, oh, we're kicking that can down the road. (laughs) You know, we wanted to be able to do a service where we could gather people together in person to celebrate him. So we ended up doing his service in October of 2020, 10 months after he died. And it was amazing. Like it was so, so just what it needed to be. And I don't think we could have pulled something like that together if we had been in kind of typical pre-COVID times where the norm is to kind of do the service soon, you know? And another kind of weird, perverse pandemic silver lining is that Jacob ended up working from home for the last eight months of Colson's life. And so he was able to really be a part of the rhythm of our days in a way he hadn't been when he was getting up and going to an office every day. And that's also bizarrely precious to us as well. Mm. Yes. Yes. So much there. <sighs> okay. I want to I wanna talk about your latest blog that was so powerful and so intense. You spoke of obligation and you spoke of purpose. And I want to kind of dig into a little bit of both, actually, and how how your obligation from being Colson's mom and his administrator and his full-time caregiver to this mom now who has time, you say, like endless time. I'd love to know your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think I was telling a friend recently, you know, the honest title of that blog post is, what the hell am I supposed to do now? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) We'll just title uh, your episode, what the hell am I supposed to do now? Yeah. I mean, like daily minute question, minute by minute, I'm asking that question. (laughs) I think that the thing I loved, I mean, I loved so much about being Colson's mom, but one of the things that I really thrived in was just the kind of intense clarity of what I needed to do in a day. And that was care for him and keep him safe and advocate him. And all the other stuff kind of fell to the side. And it was oddly liberating. And like, I was working very part time while Coulson was alive. I had volunteer responsibilities while Coulson was alive. I had other stuff to do. But It was all secondary to caring for him. And that was truly so liberating because I didn't stress out about anything but him. And I didn't direct my most precious emotional and intellectual energy towards him and our family. And what a world, you know, what what a way to live. I loved it. And now that he's gone... I know how intensely I can focus on something and how meaningful that can be and how passionate I can feel about it. And now that he's gone, everything just feels dull in my day. (laughs) And so I just trying to figure out how to direct that same level of energy and purpose and passion to anything that might be useful and particularly useful to parents who are really in the thick of caregiving, because I I think one of my biggest fears is that as I continue to surface from like the very real physical 
and emotional and intellectual difficulties of that time. I fear that I'm going to leave like my fellow complex caregivers just like in the muck. And I don't want to do that. (laughs) I want to continue to be in the muck with them. You just interrupt me whenever I am babbling because there's another dimension to this, (laughs) which is... (laughs) I'm not interrupting you. (laughs) There's another dimension to this, which is, you know, I'm 38. I have an amazing peer group of friends, many of whom are parenting you know, typically developing healthy children. And I know that they would just absolutely kill for a shred of the free time that I have, right? And a shred of like the independence that I have as they're busy doing their day-to-day with their kids. And I sometimes feel like weirdly guilty about that, which is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But I had a really great breakthrough in grief therapy yesterday when I was telling my grief counselor about this. And she was like, Liz, you didn't choose to have all of this time. You didn't choose this. You chose to be a mom and you love being a mom. And now you're a mom without a child. Like (laughs) I'm not some 19 year old on a gap year. (laughs) I'm a bereaved mom. And that reframe, oh my God, it was so helpful. So I'm feeling a little less pressure on myself right now, but not anything that's going to, you know, not anything that's going to last forever. Well, I think anything that can put a pinhole in the amount of grief and all of the gunk that you've been living with is a reprieve. Thank God for counseling. Yes. (laughs) Yes, I 100% agree. Uh, Congratulations Uh, on getting that breakthrough yesterday. That's really exciting. And I'm really glad you shared it. Thank you. And that's true. I mean, I can can definitely understand that thought process, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, of the obligation of being a parent to a child with a rare disease, to the obligation of being a parent to a child who has died and what obligation that then feeds to you, to parents who still have sick kids Mm -hmm. and to other parents who have lost kids and feeling like you have to have your foot in all of these worlds. But then also like you got to like be in your bubble and you got to be safe and you got to take care of your telomeres for lack of a better. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's really, really it's really complicated. Yeah, it's super complicated. And what's interesting is, well, it's all fascinating to me, but what's interesting is in the first year after Colson died, and I, I have yet to talk to other bereaved parents about this, but I probably should. As you know, caring for a complex kiddo is just an exercise in like constant adrenaline, right? (laughs) You're just constantly moving. And so in the year after he died, we were still kind of in that mode in a lot of ways. Like even though it was COVID, like I took on a huge project at work. We traveled to Africa. We traveled to Yellowstone. We like, we kind of kept that same level of momentum last year just because we didn't know any other way to live. And now we've kind of slowed down a little bit. And the effect of that has been to make like almost this second year of grief so far much more difficult than the first year. Like once the dust settles and once the momentum slows after a child's death, there's this 
I articulated it yesterday to my grief counselors. Like I've moved, I've kind of, I've grappled with the fact that he died and I've grappled with the fact that we've lost him. And now I'm in the next phase of like learning how to live with his absence. And it is a whole different ballgame. It is a whole different world. And that's where this sense of obligation really comes in is, is like, I have to live with his absence, but I also want to honor his memory in my life. You know, how do I make that fit? Uh, And that's another piece. Yeah. And just feeling so responsible for it. Yes. Yeah. It Like what hasn't changed? What are some of the static moments in your life that persist from day to day, even though Everything has changed. That is such a good question. (laughs) I feel like such a complain monster when I say this, but honestly, what hasn't changed is my sleep schedule. Mm, No. (laughs) I was. (laughs) uh, Colson, because he was blind and because he had central and obstructive sleep apnea. You're messed up. Yeah, I messed up. He had a non 24 schedule and it was like sleep for a few hours be awake for a few hours sleep for a few hours wait around the clock like if I could put together four hours of sleep in a night that was a really good night so that (laughs) the sleep thing remains a challenge one of the things that makes me really happy is that we really designed our house to function around Colson's needs to you know be able to accommodate his adaptive seating and his stander and his his adaptive stroller like we just designed the house around him and the house is very much still kind of colson centric his bed is still visible his playroom is still all put together we donated one of his adaptive chairs but bought like a really beautiful plant to put in its spot so like colson's corner is still thriving uh those touchstones in our home feel really incredibly comforting to me is kind of static reminders of his presence. Mm, That's so beautiful. I love that you put a little plant there. I love it. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's something about how we all undergo this fundamental transformation when we become rare disease parents and how I can only imagine the transformation that probably happens and turns over again and again and again when you lose them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And One of the things that kind of an organizing principle for me when Colson was alive that I'm trying to hold on to now that he's gone is this idea of expansiveness. When he was alive, my world expanded. I learned firsthand, you know, some very non-normative ways of being and living and learned about how many other people were in those spaces. And because I'm a huge nerd, I did a ton of reading, like reading is my coping mechanism. So I read some really amazing books about medicine and disability history and non-normative parenting and all of this stuff really just kind of expanded my view of all these kind of interrelated elements of rare disease parenting my community expanded with people I met, my love expanded, you know, loving him. And so since he's been gone, I'm really trying to hold on to that expansive mindset. You know, grief is either going to 
crumble me into a tiny ball and some days it does. But if I let it, this part of our story can expand my empathy and can expand my resilience and can expand my relationships. I just have to, I just have to pay attention to what it needs from me. I love that idea of expansion and it's so jarring in the beginning too, Mm -hmm. when you're like, holy cow, I didn't even know this world existed. Well, actually I did, but I pretended that it didn't because it had nothing to do with me. Yes. Right. And like another word for expansion is like stretching, you know, being drawn and quartered. Like it's, it's not always comfortable. (laughs) It's not always pretty, but (laughs) Uh, that makes me wonder because I hear stuff like this a lot just in in private messages from people. Do you want to hang out with parents like us now? Or do you feel like you don't belong anymore? Or do you feel like it's exhausting and that you're on a totally like different planet in terms of like awareness and understanding that it's almost the same as like me talking to that mom who only cares about like what lunchbox she needs to buy her daughter. <laughs> like, is it what is it like and how does it feel and what's real about it? Girl, all <laughs> I want is to hang out with people <laughs> like you. <laughs> so it's such a good question. There's so many dimensions to it. So I absolutely want to stay connected and spend time with families who are in this rare disease space, there's a lot in it for me. Um, When I spend time with friends who have children who are like Colson, I feel close to Colson. I, you know, will occasionally babysit. When I will say one of Colson's friends, it was Colson made a friend, uh, again, through the Seattle Parents of Children with Disabilities group, we made friends with a family who had a son who was very similar to Colson, different diagnosis, but kind of same manifestation. And he was Colson's only friend who was like him. Uh, so I still occasionally get to babysit this friend and spend time with him because I know how to do his care. And that just makes my heart so, so, so happy. The other thing that I enjoy about staying connected to the community is just watching it blossom and grow and watching the level of support and care that people have for each other. I know that I have had incredibly meaningful interactions with people in the community whose backgrounds are very different than mine, whose political beliefs are very different than mine. And yet none of that matters when we are all organizing around the well-being of children. Uh, It is such a unifying community, such a unifying space to be. And I really really enjoy that. The other piece that feels it, it always, it felt fraught when Colson was alive and it feels fraught now. I'm trying to figure it out. The other piece for me is I know there's a huge, well, I'll say this. The other piece for me is around palliative care advocacy. My life with Colson, our life with Colson was beautiful and wonderful and hopeful largely because we started using palliative care when he was seven months old. And I was initially so resistant to the palliative care referral, which came from our neurologist when Colson's seizures were not, when it became clear that Colson's seizures were not responding to medication, she made this referral. And I, my immediate 
response to her was like, aren't those the people that deal with advanced directives? Like, you know, uh uh-uh. And she was like, yes. And (laughs) they also, like their primary purpose is to help families live into their values in the care of their children. And sometimes that care does include end-of-life care, but often it doesn't. Oftentimes it's how do we just make this really complicated life more rich and more powerful and more beautiful and make really complicated decisions in a way that aligns with our values. And part of my desire to stay connected to the community of rare disease parents is to continue to advocate for palliative care because it's such a powerful, transformative resource. But I also know that it's a scary one (laughs) to come to for the first time. Oh, thank you for bringing up palliative care. And I loved your definition of it when you said to help families live in their values. Jennifer Seidman says that a lot. I don't know if you caught the most recent episode of Once Upon a Gene TV, but we talk all about palliative care. Oh, I love that. And why aren't rare disease families referred to palliative care? Like the second they get a diagnosis, first of all, I feel like it's a hidden thing a lot of the time Mm -hmm. that you don't know about until you know, and then you almost have to beg for it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's because there just isn't enough space or what, but I think every rare disease family deserves a palliative care referral. I absolutely 100% agree. And, you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a medical expert, but my understanding is that a lot of physicians, not even physicians, basically a lot of the team members who are involved in children's care don't have training in palliative care referrals and are hesitant to offer them because it is a scary conversation to broach. And because there is misunderstanding, I would say generally in the community of what palliative care is and what it can do, it's a scary thing to broach. And so people don't broach it. Um, and I'm actually, I'm right now working as, as a family advisor with a group of palliative care experts who are working to develop some curriculum for non-palliative care providers, so people working in the medical field who aren't necessarily trained in palliative care, to communicate using some of the skills that are used in palliative care and to potentially you know, learn how to broach referrals in that space, which I think there's a huge need for. Huge need. Yeah. Do that. And I think you should just start the conversation with this is more like Christmas than anything (laughs) scary. Because when I learned what palliative care truly was, I was blown away and so excited. And I just don't know how that could really ever be scary if, if, if the information is being displayed in exactly how it is for a family who's an administrator and a caregiver for their kid. Absolutely. And honestly, like, it's such a sensitive topic to broach because it is such a powerful resource and a common thread in, in palliative care is that children are living with life-limiting illnesses. And and I think broadly, you know, we haven't figured out how to define that and talk about that in non-scary ways. So on one end of the spectrum is our experience, is life-limiting in that this disease will shorten your child's life. And 
Blythe at Courageous Parents Network always says the better the before, the better the after. And palliative care helps make the before as good as it absolutely can be. Um, and I've, I've personally benefited from that. But so there's that end of the spectrum. But then there's everything else that precedes it that might, again, I'm air quote, limit a child's life in some ways in terms of intellectual or physical disability, right? Or, or things that just make it difficult for them to participate in activities of daily living that most children and families take for granted. And that kind of framing around life limiting, I think we, the palliative care community, et cetera, doctors haven't kind of figured out how to frame that up and how to qualify that in ways that are most appropriate for palliative care, as opposed to like just, you know, early intervention and and services from the school district, you know? I love Blythe so much. And I love that sentence, the better the before, the better the after for anything, right? Like making it a softer landing, having some sort of some sort of tenderness to something before. And it actually kind of makes me think of something totally different. I wanted to talk about it because it's in my brain now. And I want to know what the difference between you living with like your ambiguous grief while Colson was alive and the type of grief that you were living after and if any of that fits in there. Oh my gosh, such a good question. So definitely a lot of ambiguous grief when Colson was alive. I did a lot of active anticipatory grieving while he was alive. So I really, really spent time with and stared down the fact that like my child was going to die young. That helped me in the immediate aftermath of his death. It was a thing that that we had almost been waiting to happen, like kind of looking around every corner, right? Like, when is this going to hit us? When is this going to upend our lives? And there was this bizarre sense of like, okay, it's happened. Like, it has happened. So I did carry that grief that I had done before his death forward into this kind of next phase of living without him. And again, palliative care support really helped me think through that. Part of it comes around, and again, I I might be swirling, so pull me back if you need to, but part of it really comes around the decisions we made when he died. So again, the better the before, the better the after. When he died, we had to make some very, very, very quick decisions about whether or not we were going to pursue more aggressive intervention. Um, He had been intubated, but they were unable to get him on a vent because his lungs had been damaged from a very quick onset and quickly destructive pneumonia. Um, They couldn't get him on the vent, and we had the option to put him on AC ECMO, which is basically heart and lung bypass, you know, the, the highest level of life support. And because of the conversations we had had with palliative care and because of the work that we had done around what we wanted his life to look like, we were able to shape what we want, what, what we knew his death needed to look like. It wasn't even a choice. Like it wasn't even really a choice for us when he died. It was we were listening to his body. We were listening to our values. We knew that a more aggressive intervention was not right for our family at that time. And so we let him go. And 
again, carrying that forward into now, we feel so clearly that that moment, that moment of clarity and acceptance was an act of love and was something that palliative care absolutely prepared us for. And our grief now, I think, has been mitigated, potentially somewhat lessened that we're not agonizing whether or not we made the right decision. That agony of that decision has been removed from us because we had palliative care. And I think the other thing from living into palliative care and with palliative care while he was alive that has helped us now is I really accepted early in Colson's life that every future was going to be difficult. Every future as his mother was going to be hard. There was the future where he was here, but he was severely disabled and medically complex and just growing into a body that was actively working against him. That was going to be hard or he would die. And that was going to be hard too. The crux of it for me was which version of hard was going to be the least hard for Colson. And that was so abundantly clear how it needed to play out when he died. And again, that's helped. That's helped now here. I'm on a hard path that I knew I was going to be on. And I know it's the right path. Oof. I mean, I'm I'm speechless. I really am. God, what an incredible piece of insight that you had into being able to focus, if you will, in making those decisions and looking forward with that mindset. I'm so grateful that you had palliative care and I'm so grateful that it mitigated any agony whatsoever. And I just think about the families who didn't have resources like this or didn't have coping skills like this and who live in the depths of despair because they just didn't know and they didn't sort through things even just a little bit for whatever reason. And man, there's just so many paths of just terrifying stuff that this can take one. Yes, absolutely. And I can hear the kind of tenderness in your voice right now. And I so appreciate your deep listening and care. I always try to validate when I'm speaking about palliative care, that whatever path a family chooses is the right one for that family. And and palliative care does a really good job of that too. Like for some families, an AC ECMO might have been the right thing in that same situation, you know, like for every family, whatever path they choose is the right one. The most important thing though, that I feel like is missing for so many families is that kind of tailoring for the family, because in the absence of being able to kind of grapple with all of that complexity of like, what are our 10 paths forward potentially, and how might we want to live into either any of them? In the absence of any of that is the most fundamental thing, which is for a parent to keep their child alive, right? That is the most fundamental instinct in the world. And it is a beautiful and powerful and right instinct. Unfortunately, we don't live in a world that lets all kids stay alive, you know, and we don't live in a world that lets all kids live, stay alive or stay alive with quality of life. And that's such a 
poop sandwich to have to accept. (laughs) But parents who are parenting children with rare disease or with life-limiting illnesses often have to work against some of the most instinctive things. Not even, you know, keep my child alive at all costs, but you know, I remember when Colson had to get a feeding tube, I was like, but my my one job as a mother is to feed him. <laughs> my one job is to feed him. So all of these like very natural feedback loops and instincts and mechanisms are so disrupted when your kid is sick. It is such a mind mess and palliative care can help people sort out that mess because again, it's not something we can or should have to do alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That reminds me of another thing that I always remember Jennifer saying is that palliative care helps you helps they're your quarterback right and they help you remember what your plans were and then they help Mm -hmm. you change them and tailor them to how your family is right now and that making decisions that are different than how you felt before aren't wrong aren't giving up aren't being forced but that it's a moving it's a moving living thing yes and it's having that support to help you kind of kind of go through all of that stuff that you're right disrupts the natural human instincts and just help carry it yeah and and helps i think reduce some of the pressure you know i'll speak candidly about this because why not towards the end of colson's life like in the few months before he died i was feeling very strongly that we needed to pivot our caregiving to comfort care only i was feeling very strongly that he was like in another phase of his disease of his life and that we were on the decline. And I had begun having those conversations with Jacob and those are really heavy, hard, intense conversations. And we knew that we didn't have to exist in that pressure cooker ourselves, right? We knew that we could call in palliative care to help us have those conversations. And that, that relieved a lot of pressure on us as a couple, on us as his parents. And it was kind of on the to-do list, right? (laughs) On the to-do list, talk to palliative care about switching to comfort care. But just having that pressure valve, you know, interpersonal relationships in a partnership and a family and a marriage is really helpful too. (sighs) Okay, well, I have a million things that I want to talk to you about. But for today, I'll just ask you one more question. Mm Mm-hmm. I want to know what is actually burning in your soul right now in regards to purpose, in regards to obligation, and everything that swirls around and that you haven't decided, but what is what is it actually speaking to you and where do you feel warm right now? Oh, Effie, <laughs> that's such a beautiful question. Honestly, we joke about this in our household, but the thing that is giving me the most energy And the most hope is obtaining more children. Because of the genetic nature of Colson's disease, we are not able to have more biological children, but we've decided to become certified foster parents. And as part of going through the certification process, we're hoping to learn more about what type of fostering might be best for our family and kind of going back to this nature of expansiveness, you know, kind of expanding the circle of love and the circle of care. A lot of The goal of fostering is reunification, is reunifying children with their birth families. And I think, you know, I, I know how much I benefited from an an expansive support system while Colson was alive. And if we can be that for another family in a difficult time, I want to be that. So that's where my, my energy and my hope is right now. 
<sighs> That's amazing. Wow. I love that so much. I love that the reason behind that. I love that so much, Liz. You're Aww. going to the good place. <laughs> you are. Uh, we're excited. You know, it's, it's a long road. It's, it's a long road, but, you know, we can do hard things. Yes. So. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Not to be in our podcast, but you have you connected with Andrea Graham? She runs the swap meet, right? She runs the swap meet. Yeah. But she yeah. fostered and later adopted a couple uh, kiddos with rare diseases. Oh, wow. So she might be a good resource. That's great to know. That's great. I have not connected with her super personally, but I mean, she's one of those rock stars, right? Yep. yep. I don't, she's doing it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, Liz. Well, I love you so much. And I'm so grateful that you were here today. I think that what you have to say, I know what you have to say, just it, it ripples between so many different families in all of their walks of life. And you're not just speaking to parents who lost a child or parents who have a child with a shortened lifespan. You're speaking to so many in the community and your wisdom is just so beautiful and it's so gentle and you're just such a treasure. So thanks for thanks for being my guest today. Thank you so much for having me. This was lovely and I love you too. And I love, love, love seeing videos of your kids and family. <laughs> Thank you. On, on the Facebook. Um, and I'm I'm so glad Ford is is doing as well as he is. Thank you. Thank you. All right, my friend. All right. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people. And please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story, or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.